Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 99. I'm delighted to bring you this episode. This episode is with England's senior women's physical performance manager, Dawn Scott. Dawn is someone that I've wanted to get on the podcast a long time and also someone that is heavily requested when we put out recommendations for guests. Um, And I think you'll see exactly why when we go into this podcast. I I really, really enjoyed this chat with Dawn. Um, I've got to give a special shout out as well to um, Rob Pacey because we reference his podcast and uh, one of the latest episodes of his podcast as well where they um, talked about very similar topics of what we're going to talk about in this episode as well and the challenges the females face in sport and the discussion they had was absolutely incredible so I'm going to post the link to Rob's podcast and the episode in the show notes if you haven't already listened to it go and give that a listen as well Um, but there's loads of stuff that I covered with Dawn as well and loads of great advice that Dawn gives in this episode so um, we covered Dawn's career path and background Um, We also talked about the challenges that she's faced in her career. We talked about her her advice for female coaches to create opportunities. Um, We talked about the current standard of physical uh, preparation in female football. And then we expanded on the recent uh, FIFA physical report that came out about the 2019 World Cup, which if you haven't have it a read-through already. I had a read-through before the episode. There's loads of great information in that. Um, so you can go and check it out. I think it's on the FIFA website. Uh, go and give that a read. But Dawn just expands on the research that they did and the impact that it will potentially have on preparing players as well. And then we also spoke about future research in the women's game. So Dawn's views on areas that need researching um, and ways that the women's game can be can be taken forward so loads in this one um, we have had a few practitioners reaching out and in particular female practitioners reaching out asking to get a female coach on to talk through some of the challenges that they, they face and going through some advice for female coaches and I think this does exactly that so I really hope that you take loads from this one so please give it a share and um, I'm sure this will be a popular popular episode I'm sure many people know of Dawn and Dawn's work but she's someone that, yeah, I definitely, I could have spoken to her for, I think we went for just over an hour, but um, this one could have gone on for a long time. So I really appreciate her coming on the podcast and I hope you take plenty from it as well. And um, I'm just in the process right now of preparing for episode 100, which is going to be the next episode as well. So I'm going to be bringing you, hopefully, fingers crossed, we're going to get together and get two brilliant practitioners on the podcast um, so I'm really looking forward to giving you, bringing that episode to you as well. But here is episode 99 with Dawn Scott. Welcome back to episode 99 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dawn Scott. Dawn is somebody that every time we ask for recommendations, your name, <laughs> Dawn, has come up time and time again. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No worries, I'm flattered. I'm good. I didn't make the 100, though. <laughs> I know, I know. Very close, very close. <laughs> just one, just one away. But I'm sure a lot of people know your role, Dawn. Um, England Senior Women's Physical Performance Manager. Um, but 
Do you want to just take us back? Because I, I know a lot of people will know the roles that you've had so far and your current role, but do you want to just give us a little bit of background and take us up to your current role? Yeah, no problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I started out many years ago um, back when uh, education was, um, you basically didn't have to kind of fund your education. So I actually started a physics degree uh, way back in 1993 at, at Nottingham University because uh, I wasn't sure, kind of came to the end of school, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Really enjoyed kind of, I did maths, physics, electronics as my A-levels. Really enjoyed physics, so kind of uh, went to Nottingham, did physics, uh, started a physics degree. After my first year, um, started the second year, um, was sat in an astronomy uh, kind of module. And I guess at that time was kind of then starting to review, like, you know, where is this going to take me? You know, I'm not sure I want to be an astronaut. Like, where do I want to go next? Um, and again, with my dad's help, found kind of a loophole. So I pulled out of the course and actually worked for a year. And I actually worked as a as a, um, a VDU operator, as they called us, a visual display unit, which was literally tapping on a keyboard, which actually, in hindsight, when I went back to university, really helped in terms of being able to type up assignments quickly when I did go back to university. Um, and then I uh, went to Manchester Metropolitan, which was Crunel Sager faculty at the time, and did, um, did a sports science degree. Again, before I'd gone to Nottingham, I'd... And, you know, when you kind of decide which uh, universities, colleges that you might want to go to and which subjects, I'd only um, put sports science down at one. And ironically, it was at um, Liverpool John Moores, which I think was Liverpool Polytechnic at the time. Um, but again, wasn't sure that sports science was really a, a route, a career path to go down. So in the end, went for the physics, but actually got got back to the sports science in the end. Um, so, yeah, so I did sports science degree at, at Manchester Met. Um, finished that summer. Again, wasn't sure where to go next. There wasn't really many jobs um, in sport, in sports science at that time. Um, seen, uh, no, um, advertised on, on the notice board a, a master's in sports nutrition up at Aberdeen University, and it was a funded master's. So myself and a friend who'd finished the course were like okay let's apply and go there and we can add like top on on um top up kind of the sports science degree so went and did the the sports um, nutrition masters in in Aberdeen with um Ron Warren and Susan Shereff and John Leeper who was up there um so again that was a great learning experience as well um finished that um started kind of looking at again what jobs were there um and then was uh, lucky enough, a, a lecturing job came up at Worcester University. Uh, so I was there for three and a half years, lecturing sports science. Um, and then uh, towards the end of that time, the FA advertised, they were expanding their sports science department. Um, and actually somebody I worked with, uh, her husband was a, a sports scientist at the FA, uh, Mark Hulse. Um, so I applied for the FA job and um, got interviewed and was, was fortunate to get it. They had expanded so that they were supporting their um, men's and women's pathways with sports scientists and medical team. Um, so I got the job at the FA, was in a department with the likes of uh, Tony Strudwick, Sam Erith, Rich Hawkins, um, uh, Rob Price, who's at, at Leeds Physio. Um, so kind of was there for, for nine years. Uh, again, with the women's team, uh, started a kind of sports science support program from, from the start because there was nothing in place 
previously against sports science in in the men's game was new and was was pretty much non-existent on the women's side. Um, also at the time uh, on the women's side, they were full-time careers first and would top up um, their training after their jobs um, and, and train with their clubs probably two or three times a week. So it very much was monitoring currently what they were doing, starting to look at the demands of, of, of match play for, for club, for international, uh, developing programmes to basically get the players fitter, um, supplying them with heart rate watches to start monitoring that training and, and programme for the players uh, away from camp, but monitoring those loads in camp, um, starting education around nutrition, hydration, recovery, lifestyle. Um, and then through that pathway, it was lucky to, to be part of, um, we hosted the European Championships in 2005 and then qualified for the World Cup in 2007, um, where we got beaten the quarterfinals. And then in 2009, European Championships, which were in Finland, we got to the final of that and, and got beat by Germany in the final, which, you know, it was a it was a measure of how far we'd come. But still, we got beat 6-2 in the final by Germany, who'd, I think that was their third or fourth successive European Championship win. So it was like a measure of how far we'd come, but still how far that gap was between us and, and the best teams in the world. Um and then towards the end of, of 2009, was approached by uh, U.S. Soccer um, for the, the, the U.S. Women's National Team. Um, they had never had a full-time sports scientist. Um, they just won. They won the um, Beijing Olympics in, in 2008, but then hadn't had a sports scientist since then. So if I'm honest, the, the head coach would do any fitness testing in camp and, and that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, so then got offered a role and, and moved out there in 2010, um, just packed up a couple of cases and, and off I went. Um, so yeah, so then was at US Soccer from 2010 to 2019 um, with that team, supported them across three World Cup finals, two Olympic Games, uh, travel probably 150 to 200 days a year for for 10 years, um, and then accumulated in you know we won the World Cup uh, last summer, um, and you know after that it was we'd been to all three World Cup finals, um, got beaten the 2011 final, and then won the 15 and 19, and again after the World Cup it was you know just reviewing a little bit. I think I was if I'm honest, I think I was exhausted from the accumulation of the travel of of the nine or ten years reviewing the position a little bit, kind of a couple of conversations with US Soccer about, you know, could the role expand and could we apply some of the work we've done with the senior women across across the pathway? But that role kind of wasn't wasn't something that was available at that time. Um, and then at the same time, the FA had reached out, uh, Phil, had, Phil had reached out and Sue Campbell and, um, you know, they they kind of um, told me about the ex exciting opportunity with, with the England women's team where, you know, part of the FA's aim is to win something for a senior team by um, 2023. Um, and again, you know, England came very close last summer. Um, you know, you, I watched the game from a different lens a couple of months ago when it was on the TV. Obviously, back last summer, it was, I was on the US bench. I watched it kind of from the England lens and, you know, it, Kira Walsh had a had a, a shot that was saved and there was a penalty save and you know for 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 those things being reversed it could have been a different story so you know England are extremely close but it's exciting that you know there's um so much support behind the team and um you know the players badly want it and you know I think they're in a position where they can win something and, and we can win something in the next 
um, two or three years. So, yeah, so I was offered that opportunity at the end of last year and kind of made the switch back to England um, and, and, yeah, back to family as well. It must be a really exciting time to step in with that squad right now because, like you say, some of the talent they've got available is is brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, yeah, like I say, they they came close uh, last summer, and um, yeah, I mean, they've got obviously a, a kind of more senior group of players, but an, a, a really exciting group of younger players coming through. There's a couple of of players from the under 19s who are playing at college in the US, um, and also just like how strong the WSL is right now, and the commitment of of the teams there to. Um, you know, make their environment and make their teams even better, I think can only kind of help the the England environment as well in terms of developing those players at clubs because that's where they are the majority of the time throughout the year so that then when they come in with England, um, you know, they're kind of even more developed than they have been in the past. Yeah, definitely. And I said to you before we started recording, Don, that we get we've had a lot of messages now from uh, young practitioners, so practitioners that are post grad or even still going through degrees, um, to, and a lot of female practitioners as well that are reaching out and saying, "Can you get someone on the podcast to talk about the challenges that um, females faced in in sport in general, but obviously S and C sport science?" And obviously, there's no one better to come on to talk about that than, <laughs> you, than yourself and. Um, and these these are some of the people that have asked you to come on, uh, asked to get you on the podcast as well. So I thought it'd be great to delve into this. So you've talked about your career and obviously um, your journey so far. But what have been some of the, the challenges you've faced? I mean, I think first and foremost, um, you know, I think sometimes when you're in it, you don't maybe see it. And I think when you then reflect it kind of some of it resonates and makes more sense and you know I think one of the the biggest challenges is being kind of a female having a career in sport and um, I listened to the podcast that that um, Rob Pacey uh, did a couple of weeks ago with uh, Sophia Nymphius and uh, Lorena, Lorena Torres uh, who's a high performance director at um, the Philadelphia uh, 76ers um, and, and and a lot of what they said resonated about being a female in a sporting environment. Um, and I think some of that, um, you know, is around um, very much the sporting arena has been and is male dominated. And that's everything from the athletes, the coaches and the high performance and the practitioners. And I think you can look at kind of like different different facets or different areas where you know, is it a female working in the in the male arena? Is it female and female? And kind of what are the ratios of, of some of those um, kind of numbers? Um, and I think in terms of um, kind of the athlete side, I think, you know, I kind of did a little bit of research. And if you looked at the Olympics, um, I think it was back in 1964, only 13% of, of the athletes at the Olympic Games were female, were women. And actually, it was going to be this year was the highest ever proportion of, of female athletes, which it was going to go up to 48%. So it was almost a, an identical um, kind of male-female ratio. So I think that in part is is some of it. Um, you look at the women's game, like they've just produced a, the FA a game plan for growth where um, female participation is up almost 54% over the last 10 years to, to almost 2.5 million females now playing football. When I look back to when I was growing up, um, like I would go out in the street and play football with the boys at school. 
I only ever played netball. Like again, at primary school, it was netball or it was no, or rounders probably, or no sport. There was never any football at school, but, but being, being a girl growing up that time, like you didn't even realize that there wasn't anything formal or organized for girls. It was literally, I'd get home from school, do your homework and then go out and just play football with the boys, put the jumpers down and, and probably play till dark. Um, And again, if I think about playing netball at school, like if you then get home and you wanted to go play netball, you couldn't because there's no netball posts, but what was accessible was actually just to go out and kick a ball. Um, and then, like, I got to, um, like, 13, 14, and, you know, like, I really enjoyed football and wanted to play for a team, but had no clue where there was any teams that I could actually go and play for. So my mum actually called up a, a um, radio station to say, I've got a girl who loves, a daughter, sorry, who loves football, like, are there any local teams? And a team got in touch, but it was... Um, it was, we didn't have a car at the time and it was two bus journeys away and, you know, you're 14, you're at school and, um, you know, you just couldn't do that kind of two times a week. And then it was, um, you know, full day on a Sunday. So, you know, that was hard to do that. And it actually wasn't until I went to university at 18 that I had the opportunity to play um, football in a, in a formalised, be coached and actually play for a team and, you know, in an official match. So I think in some ways, you start then reflecting a bit and actually think, well, yeah, it was very much male dominated and there was an opportunity for girls to play. And, you know, I even listened to a podcast that that Kelly Smith, probably the, the greatest um, player England's ever had. And when she was growing up, it was the same. There was no opportunities for her to play. And she played for a boys team and then another parent spotted that she was a girl and she got kind of taken out of the game. And, you know, they said she couldn't play. So, you know, I think we've evolved and changed so much because you look at, whatever two and a half million females now playing so there are more opportunities I think you then look at say the coaches side I think there's less there's less probably information available in terms of how many S&C coaches or sports scientists but you know you look at coaches alone and you know if I look at say the WSL the, the women's league over here um, six of the 12 WSL teams are female coaches. You look in the NWSL, so the equivalent league in America, and only one of the nine teams is a female head coach. Um, I think you look at the, the women's national teams around the world and only 20% of, of those teams have a female head coach. It's quite ironic that the final last year, actually both teams were female head coaches. Do you know what I mean? So, it's, um, so I think some of it is, um, you know, part it, it, sport is a very much kind of male-dominated arena. Um, even the NCAA, you know, the college system in the US, it's similar where, you know, there's a, there's a dominance of, of male head coaches. And I think if you then look at the the sports that do have female head coaches, they tend to be more of the, the feminine sports. So like field hockey, um, lacrosse, gymnastics, um, whereas some of the, the, if you like, kind of more masculine or, or or typically male-dominated sports like soccer have have males as, as their head coaches. Um, and then I think it's similar, again, if I look at, say, the, the Women's League here in in England and the, the US, again, uh, in England, I think um, three of 12 of the, the women's uh, teams over here have a female as their sports scientist, head sports scientist. And similar in the US, I think it's two of nine are kind of female. So, you know, I think part of it is that it's a male dominated arena and it, you know, at times it is hard to break into it. And I think as well, um, 
you know, sometimes I've looked at a job and it's a job in a male sport and I've looked at it and thought, am I good enough to do that? And I think some of that then resonates in that, you know, that's silly. You shouldn't have the doubts that you can work in a male sport if you've been successful or you've worked with with female athletes because the underlying um you know kind of principles of, of what you're doing is is very same you're just applying it to a different arena um and then I think you know some of the other things I've kind of faced in the past is you know sexist or, or kind of gender comments or, or banter and um you know like way back probably probably more like 10 15 years ago would be comments about you know should women be playing football and and that kind of thing and you know there's still stuff like that on social media and you know some of it is when it's there face to face and you're receiving it if you join in and 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 you know have that if you want to call it banter or have that conversation that dialogue back it can get quite nasty and and you know, that kind of thing and, and unpleasant or you ignore it and you get accused of, of being kind of moody and all, like, you know, she's upset kind of thing. So, you know, I think that can be hard to kind of tolerate and, and face sometimes. Um, and then, um, you know, I think that the last piece as well, and this is probably society generally, I think females who are in the sporting arena or, you know, kind of different kinds of um, uh, kind of roles, I think tend to not be in those positions like those senior positions so it's almost positions that are that are kind of lower ranked with with less decision making you know less control of budgets less opportunity to to maybe recruit staff um and that kind of thing and you know I think linked into that is probably lower lower salary as well whether it is the females in um as a practitioner or females working in female sport um so you know I think all of that sometimes is is something that is challenging. Um, I think some of it, because of the people you've had around you, like, you know, whether it's the supporters around you, your family around you, you know, and also I'm quite a resilient person that, you know, some of it you can brush off and push through. Um, you know, I also have experiences of, of teaching on coaching licenses where you walk in the room and every single coach in there is male. And I've had it, you know, I've had it where I've walked in, you've visibly seen it, where the coach has looked at you and like either like mouthed like what what is she gonna teach us or like made a comment to their to their male coach next to them and, and laughed. And um, you know, some of those were hard. And you know, I remember at the time having to build myself up to go in the room and, and almost self-talk that you are good enough to deliver this, you know how to deliver this, you can do this. And, you know, it was then satisfying that you would go in and a lot of those co coaching courses, there would be kind of a, an element in the classroom uh, where you would deliver some theory and then you'd go out on the pitch and, and deliver that piece as well, you know, building out like warm-ups or like football-specific, um, you know, speed drills and, and conditioning sessions. And, you know, you'd go out and you'd deliver it. And, you know, again, at the time, you'd have coaches come up, come up after and, and um, thank you. You'd have coaches come up and go oh wow like you know your stuff and yes that's nice feedback but it's also a bit patronizing like would you say to a male um c person delivering that oh wow you know your stuff um you know there was also an incident where um a coach had famously in in the media said 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 a comment about women should stay in the kitchen and this one course I was delivering this coach happened to be on the course and at the end of it he came up to me and said you know thank you I, I really enjoyed it I learned a lot and you know I just retorted does that mean women can come out the kitchen now and you know I think so some of that is 
you have to be strong at times. You have to really believe in yourself that you can do this. You also have to be um, like sometimes overperform. Like, you know, if it was me and a male sports scientist delivering the course, like you always feel like you have to do a better job than them. Or if ever I'm invited to present at a conference or speak on a podcast, you feel like you have to do a better job than the equivalent male because you're almost like um, representing the female kind of population. So, you know, I think some of it you experience and you bury it or you, um, you know, face it. Some of it you just expect it's the norm and and kind of get on with it and, you know, just kind of push on and, you know, it's so driven. Like, like I said, I'm resilient and driven that, you know, you're not going to let something like that affect you. I think these are conversations that have to occur, aren't they? Because, like, I know you mentioned Rob's podcast that he did and, if anyone's not listened to it, go and listen to it and listen to it a few times because um, there's so many takeaways from it. And I know you just referenced a, a few bits from it in what you talked about there, Don. And I think it's so important. But that resilience, that I suppose the worry with it is that, like you said yourself, you go into those environments, you, you come out of it and it is a test, but you're resilient, you get through it. And obviously you have with, with your career. But the worry is that other people that could be just as good a practitioner may not be able to cope in that environment and that's not what we want because then we'll lose quality practitioners out of the game won't we so how how do we go about this i know it's a bit it's a tough question because it's a changing culture but what's the answer do you think what do we need to change yeah absolutely i mean yeah it's absolutely a difficult you know conversation you know to have i think you know i think there's a few parts of that i think generally as a system as a structure as society we have to do better and i think is that Part of that is making it an appealing, um, an appealing environment for for women, for females to want to, you know, pursue something in that area. Um, I know I kind of read something that Formula One a couple of years ago identified that they they that they had minimal number of women on staff, and so they actually made a drive to recruit more women in senior roles to make it more appealing to promote in schools that there is a career in Formula One. So, you know, I think as a society, as a structure, as national government bodies, I think like doing those things, like making it, you know, um, uh, showing role models of, of um, you know, women practitioners, female practitioners, females in, in different roles who have achieved so that the girl at school can see that it is possible. And, you know, at times, again, like when I get asked to do things like this, some of it is about is exactly about that is is about exposing that females can be in positions and work with the elite athletes in the world um it's not about dawn scott it's about promoting that women can be in these positions and you know when i was in the us i was part of a a program called um women in stem which is women in um science technology engineering and maths and that was all about you know there's a very low percentage of, of women's who of females sorry who pursue careers in stem and they've done a nice thing where they've now developed this, um, it's called If Then Collection of, of Women in STEM, where there's resources that schools, libraries, museums can go on and can download, whether it's posters, images, or um, like sound bites of, of females um, who have achieved in, in all range of, you know, it's not just, um, you know, in, in sports science, it's in all kind of those STEM careers. So, you know, I think as society... Um, making those things available, promoting 
female so that the girl at school can see it is a viable route. Again, you know, if a, if a girl has a, has a passion for sport but is not an athlete, there's still other ways of being in sport, whether it is a coach, whether it's admin, whether it's sports science, you know, whether it's an analyst, you know, so there are those roles. Um, again, I think as organisations or societies making it a non-threatening um, environment for females, whether that's a mentoring process, whether that's putting on female-only courses or, you know, setting up kind of female mentors for females. And, you know, as much as I promote and support that, I'm not somebody who also says it's only women who should work in women's sport because I'm very much it's about the best person. But I think we also need to promote women in sport because some of those numbers of of the few females who do work in sport are, are pretty shocking. Um, and then I think the last piece is, is, is women, as much as we need those like structures or organizations to, to promote those pieces. I think it's also about you yourself being driven to, to seek out those opportunities. Like I gave that example of sometimes, you know, you've looked at a, a job in the past and I've gone, well, no, it's in kind of a male sport or a male environment and I'm not good enough to do it. Well, believe in yourself. If you if you tick all of the qualifications, if you tick, you know, the experience and, and those side of things, you've got just as much right to apply for it as, as the next male next to you. So, you know, I think as females, like, seek those out. I think as females, be brave. Again, if you're a female who is lacking in in that kind of confidence or um, esteem, like reach out to other female practitioners or get yourself a mentor. Again, when I was starting out in my career, there was no, um, you know, female mentors in my field and and probably some of my mentors and probably still are, are, are probably males and probably some of those people I mentioned who I first worked with at the FA. Um, but they also valued me for me and not, you know, didn't judge me based on gender. Um yeah so I think it's about seeking those opportunities being brave and you know being resilient believing in yourself you do have a have to have a little bit of you know kind of resilience I think the flip side I'd say for male practitioners and again Sophia you know who I know very well Nymphia said it about you know if you are a male practitioner or male coach like take the time to have a conversation with a female coach and ask questions about about their journeys, about their experiences. Like, don't be afraid to be a support network, be a mentor for, for females. Equally, you know, um, in the US, like I said, Lorena Torres in the in the NBA, I think is the only female high-performance director in the NBA. If you're a male, reach out to Lorena because it should work both ways. Like, she's not, you know, she's not in that position um, for any other reason on that on other than she's good enough to be there and, you know, um, and so on. So, you know, I think there's a few things we can do ourselves. I think society and then I think, you know, awareness of other people to make it a non-threatening environment for females who might want to kind of pursue careers in, in, in those fields. I just wanted to give a very quick update of some additions we've made to our online community. So anyone that hasn't seen or heard of the community before we've got an online platform available for coaches players and anyone else involved in football um, a number of webinars and presentations are available on the community and we've just made two quality additions to our webinar video library so Rotherham United performance manager Ross Burberry has presented a webinar on aligning science with football and I'm sure anyone that's heard Ross speak before will know the quality of that one. 
Um, he was back on the podcast, back on episode 47. So anyone that listens to that episode would have heard um, the quality work that Ross does. And then also Leicester City Lead Academy SNC coach Michael Cheverton um, on developing athletic qualities of academy footballers. And obviously everyone knowing the quality of the academy at Leicester, we've had Kev Paxton on the podcast recently, um, that really is a great webinar. Michael breaks down loads of programming that they do at Leicester. Also goes into depth on um, how they factor in plyometrics and split the players up into certain groups. There's loads of great detail in both of these. So you can check these webinars out along with all the other webinars that are available on there by going to footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab at the top. If you sign up there, that will give you one month free on the community. After that, it is only £4.99 per month going forward. You get on-demand access to all the presentations and webinars, um, as well as the, our WhatsApp, access to our WhatsApp group and all future webinars and presentations that will be going up onto the community as well. So go and check it out. If you're a member, just log in. You'll be able to check out these webinars. If you're not, Go and join, uh, get the free month, go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up there and give these webinars a watch. Here is part two of the podcast with Dawn Scott. 100%. I think that was my biggest takeaway from that podcast as well, was the fact of encouraging conversations um, and understanding as well from, from both sides, isn't it? That that's what the conversation should do. They should be open enough to sort of understand um, what's going on because and again I reference the podcast but people need to go and listen to it and listen to it carefully yeah. because there's so, some great discussions and Don's touched on it and expanding a lot of points here but I do encourage people to go and, and listen but I think one of the important things is um, is being truthful to these practitioners that are coming through in, in terms of the challenges they may face going ahead but like what you just mentioned there is the fact that they've got to go and create opportunities as well um, so if I put it to you, Don, and say, knowing your career path and some of the things that you face, what would your advice be going back to your younger self and some of the things that you'd have to face going through your career? Oh, that's a great question. I've done I that think. on you as well, haven't I? I didn't prepare <laughs> <you> for that. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, if I kind of look back, um, again, I'm, I'm old. I, I started out uh, like 20 years ago at, at the FA, and you know, I think I was also, yeah, I was, I was um, qualified. I was also um, uh, fortunate that at the time the FA was expanding and sports science was was a new um, field, especially in the realms of, of women's football. Um, and at that time, there was very, there was probably very few and. I'm probably going to put it the other way now. And there was probably very few females who had football experience, knowledge, interest and the sports science qualification. And so probably in the other way, I was probably in part successful because I was a female um, at the time and the FA were expanding to support their their women's side. Um, so, you know, I think some of it, and but also when I was at, at college at Worcester University, myself and two colleagues there, we all had an interest in football and we um, uh, travelled around to all, I think there was nine or ten uh, women's premier teams at the time. They were they were amateur. But we travelled, we, we were based in Worcester and there were teams in like Southampton, I think, 
Leeds United might have been the most northern um, team, but we travel, we do our kind of day lecturing and then the teams would be training like seven till nine at night. And we drove out to the teams to do fitness testing, like dietary recall, a bit of nutrition analysis. Um, and then with one team, Southampton Saints um, and Vanessa Rainbird, who was there at the time, I kind of continued that support and actually started programming for the players and and um, just uh, doing testing on a more regular basis. So kind of got some hands-on experience um it, it was voluntary I was literally I would literally drive up and down and, and deliver a bit of education and then deliver the program so you know kind of one thing I would say is get that experience get that hands-on experience because I don't think any degree course teaches you for what that is in terms of relationships with coaches relationships with players relationships with the whole staff around the team and you know you look at support staff around teams now and you know at the last world cup i think u.s soccer had 27 staff members and i believe england was very similar and you know you have the mdt around the team it's it's a much bigger process than 20 years ago so i think it's hard because i think society has changed now um and i kind of look at my path and you know i feel like i was fortunate in many ways in how i got into it and how i could grow into that role and that's why i would say now get as much hands-on experience as you can, even in a voluntary capacity, as you are going through your education, your degree, so that when you come out, if it's you against somebody else who's just qualified, you've got like a step ahead of them already in terms of having a bit of experience, kind of hands-on working with a team. Because for me, nothing beats that interaction with the players and the coaches and, you know, how you manage that and how you work with different coaches, different players, because, I don't know how many coaches I've worked with now, maybe seven or eight coaches and they all work differently. They all communicate differently. They all want data displayed in different ways. They all value the data in different degrees. You know, I've worked with, uh, I don't know, hundreds of players and, um, you know, they all learn differently. They all want data presented differently. They all have different physical profiles. So I think as much as you can get in some of that experience, so that, you know, if and when you're chasing after that that dream job, you've you've got some experience and you've got those communication and, and relationship and, you know, a little bit of leadership skills behind you to kind of go into that realm. Definitely. And that, that's something we spoke about a lot on the podcast in terms of going, taking and, and creating these opportunities because there's so many teams and players out there that are dying yeah. to be worked with, aren't there? And, and it's just a case yeah. of going seeking them. And you learn yeah. so much, don't you, from being in that environment. And I was speaking to someone just this morning about working with a Sunday league team and they were saying about all the problems they've been having, they don't listen, all this sort of stuff. And I was like, but you don't realise the skill set that that's creating. If you can get any work yeah. done in that environment, then when you move on and, and up the levels, then it's going to help massively, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And, and like you say, you like, you know, you could get experience at grassroots, you know, male, female, different levels, amateur, semi-pro, professional. Yeah, absolutely. For me, I think the more experience and diversity in terms of different groups you can work with, I think the the bigger your profile. And I think the more you learn, like, you know, your, your, your education, your course, I know they have more kind of hands-on in, in some of those modules and courses now than than back when I studied but still I just think experiencing that yourself hands-on and doing it in a voluntary capacity where it you're on your own as well and suddenly you have to deal with everything and you have to deal with 
like you throw me the sideswipe with a question. You suddenly, you suddenly got to deal with something you're not expecting. And, you know, how do you react to that? Because you have to have a front to the players and the coaches that you're not being affected um, and that you can still, um, you know, function for the players and, 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 and the staff group and the coach. No, definitely. And I'll get back on to what we agreed now, now done. <laughs> <laughs> back to the schedule. But I'm nervous now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wanted to go. One thing that we, we said we're going to touch on is, and the last World Cup, I mean, the buzz around the World Cup and the games, the quality of the games was, I thought it was incredible. I, I think it was a brilliant watch and some fantastic games. Now, off the back of that, there's obviously been the, the report that's come out, the FIFA report. And I know you've been yeah. heavily involved in that. And as, as like we were talking about before, Paul Bradley, and I'm sure many others as well. And I was just having a little flick through it before. And obviously people can go and have a look on the, on the FIFA website and, and see yeah. um, the report. But what, obviously what, what were some of the biggest takeaways? Because reading through it, I think it just defined what you saw, didn't it? But what, as a practitioner in your role, what were some of the key things that stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I was, I was um, fortunate that FIFA asked me and uh, alongside Paul Bradley to work on the report. And again, I'd also done the fifteen, the two thousand fifteen report. Um, so I think, I think there was a few things. I think this report we could really delve into a lot more detail. Um, we had a full data set in 2015. Some of the data was missing. So I think we'd learned a bit in 15. And so this was a fuller data set. You know, some of the biggest things that came out of it was the, um, there was like 30 to 50% increases in the, in the amount of high speed um, uh, kind of running distances, uh, efforts that teams either did, uh, individual players did. Um, also, if you looked at the lower-ranked teams, um, their increases from 2015 to 19 were much more substantial than the than the higher-ranked teams, which again for me was a reflection of of the increased funding globally, the increased professionalism in the women's game that players uh, countries now are in kind of more professional environments, training environments, they have better support in terms of like strength and conditioning, sports science, they have better medical support. Um, so I think it, some of it was a reflection of that. Um, again, if you kind of split to the the kind of high speed running and, and the sprint distance, the sprint distance tended to increase the highest, both on a team level and individual players. Um, from a positional perspective, there was a massive range of, of how much of, of that high-speed output players did. And again, kind of Paul did a great reflection with a heat map. Um, we pulled out like a few different positions and it was just showing like a, like a key example was a fullback where their actual output in terms of high-speed running was very similar across two games. But when you heat mapped it, one of it was up in the attacking third of the pitch and the other was more defensive and it was kind of running back towards your own goal. So again, it was like, you know, I think this time a bit with Paul's expertise and, you know, his research profile was was then pulling out more of the contextual factors of, okay, like this is the physical output, but actually what is going on from a contextual perspective? And, you know, on the team level, we could look at, number of days between matches, we could look at the round of the matches, we could look at the confederation, we looked a bit at the ranking. So again, it was kind of putting some of those factors into it to see how that affected it. And then from a positional level, 
actually, if you looked at the heat map and the direction of the movement, what were players actually doing in terms of making it more relevant and actually giving that feedback to the coaches in terms of this is what we're seeing and, and um, you know, this is how it links into the tactics or the formation of your own team, the opposing team. Like for, for three of our games, obviously I was with the US then, in the second half, um, uh, the coach changed to a five-back because we were winning and we wanted to control the game. And so straight away your high-speed running decreases because you're almost kind of sat in. So again, you know, when we looked at like first, we could look at 15-minute intervals, 45-minute intervals. And so for the US, second half in, in three of those matches, actually the, the high-speed decreased. But I then looked at kind of England and, and for their first six matches, their high-speed outputs either increased or was the same. And again, that almost reflected the game's in that if they were comfortable and winning, they could kind of sit on and hold it. But if they needed to push, you know, the US game was was an example where I think they had a 15% increase from first half to second half and they were chasing to try and get that second goal. So again, it was, we also looked at like um, the shape of teams in terms of the like where was the defensive line and um, what was the height of the line? How did that impact like when the high speed running was done and and things like that? So it was really trying to, put a lot more like contextual um, information on it to really make it user-friendly for the coaches um, so that they could look at it and think, okay, like, wow, this is my team and this is where they sit in the whole like realm of, of the rest of the world. But, you know, also the US, as, as you might expect, didn't do the most high-speed output because, again, it was what they needed to do for each game and the highest output for the US was in in our third group game against Sweden and similar for Sweden their highest high speed output in that game was against us and you know historically the US have always had Sweden I think uh, we didn't have, we didn't have well we played them they beat us in the 2016 Olympics but um we've already we've always had them in the group stages in the 11 15 and 19 world cup so it's you know kind of one of those physical battles um so that was our highest output, but I think the point and, and the whole theme throughout the report was making it contextual and that it's not just about the physical data. You need to look at, you know, the tactics, the formation, the, the, the game outcome, because at the end of the day, that's the most important piece. But for me, it's just the women's game is just exciting. And, you know, even after that tournament, um, Gianni uh, Infantino, the, the FIFA president, commit um, $1 billion to women's football over the next four years, which, you know, again, is incredible to continue to to push on and grow the game. And um, at this tournament, I think there was 28 teams and next tournament there's going to be 32. So again, just kind of continuing to kind of push that, um, you know, is, is important. Um, and there was even something recently where um, the the NWSL, the Women's Pro League in the US, uh, they've just had their tournament out in Houston. Um, and the North Carolina coach, which, you know, kind of historically, they've got some of the better athletes on their team. And, you know, he just posted out a message that over 50% of his squad are hitting between 30 and 32 and 34 kilometers per hour as their top speed. So I think that also was reflected in the World Cup in that, for me, the game has got so much faster and, Again, even with the with the US team, probably four or five years ago, um, you know, we probably had a third of the team who weren't hitting 30 kilometers per hour. And, you know, by the time of the World Cup, every player was comfortably over 30 kilometers per hour as their top speed. So, you know, I think from that piece, um, 
you know, that's just a, a measure again of how far the, the women's game's gone. And I think from a spectacle, you see it. Like, you know, you look back at footage of 2011, even 15 and now 19 and, you know, just the pace of it, the athleticism, you know, in the game, the, you know, the quality of the football as well is, you know, I think it's just growing and you just think, where's it going to be at 2023? I think it's so exciting. No, definitely. And I think some of the, a couple of things that I saw and it was the um, increase in the, the build-up play, so keeping the ball better, and then the increase on the pressing um, yeah. of teams as well. So with that in your role, how was, how was that or how will that um, sort of tweak how you prepare players? Because obviously the game's becoming a lot more powerful. Like you said, there's going to be more higher speeds and we don't know where it's going to go over the next few years, but if it's going to, going to follow the same trend, it's going to get faster. Yep. It's going to get mo- yep. much more exciting. So how does that tweak or does it tweak how you prepare players? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think as a practitioner, you always look at, you know, what are we preparing our players for? And ultimately that is those match demands. Um, obviously you've got, you know, kind of the England match demands and then, you know, they've got their their WSL matches as well or NWSL. We've got a couple of players in America and then a couple of players, uh, Leon and, and a player in Spain. So again, it's, you know, what are the match demands for the player? What are we preparing the players to do? Um, and then for me, using that as a basis of... Um, you know what is your what does your training look like, and and are you preparing the players to to match and hit what those kind of high speed outputs are? Um, again, with the FA, they um, Rich Aiken head at the FA has done a lot of analysis around kind of game pace training, where you know you look at thirty second, one minute, two minute, three minute, right down to ten minute kind of peak uh, periods, and you know what do the meters per minute look like? What are the accelerations, decelerations per minute? look like what does the high speed running per minute look like for each of those periods and again just making sure that uh, players hit some of that exposure in the lead up to an international match so that when they come to you know the England match they're not suddenly surprised at, at the pace of, of what that is so I think always using that as your end point your start point is you know what are their current physical profile what's their fitness um, and you know for me I think Yes, you have those metrics in terms of satisfying them to, to match the match demands, but I think from developing the player's fitness, I think it's just using your your basic physiological principles for, you know, developing all of those fitness parameters, whether it's, you know, your endurance, your strength, your power, your speed. And, um, you know, if you've got players who do need to do a bit more than others, then, you know, what does that look like and how is that individualised for them? And, you know, just looking at the individual player and, what are they doing off the pitch? Like they could be the best trainer in the world, but what is this other 22 hours looking like? What's their nutrition, their hydration, their recovery? Because uh, ultimately if they're not getting that right, then what they're doing on the pitch is, is not going to be optimal and get them to where they need to be. No, definitely. And I think the other thing that the, re- the report um, and, and some of the things that you spoke about in terms of the report shows that the, the opportunities are going to be there as well, aren't they, for female coaches with the female game growing at the very top in terms yeah. of the World Cup. Um, more yeah. teams being involved, like you said, and, and more need for this um, physicality and athleticism. And there's going to be more opportunities surely so everything we've talked about beforehand sort of ties in with with this report as well doesn't it yeah totally yeah yeah, yeah. and even you know again 
I think we touched on that of, of you know, kind of um, the opportunities growing. I think even, you know, it would be good at some point if a female breaks into the, into the men's, uh, you know, professional game as a head coach. Um, you know, even MLS in the US, there's no female head coaches. Obviously, in UK, there isn't. Um, I think there was one just recently in Sweden, maybe, the first female um, head coach of, of a pro team. Um, so, you know, I think that would be obviously something groundbreaking as well. Um, but then equally, you know, the women's game expand and yes, opportunities for female coaches, but just opportunity for coaches generally in terms of making sure you get get the best person for the job. And, you know, even within that coaching group, having having some female presence in there um, and, and, you know, whether it's a, you know, mentorship opportunity or just a coaching opportunity again within that coaching team. Definitely. And it's like what we said about before, isn't it? Having that network of coaches that you can reach out to because mentors and people that are within those roles. And like you, you said on the male side as well, we spoke about some names that are involved, some females that are involved in the, in the male side. And that's what you want to see grow as well, isn't it? To not just um, separate that you work on the female side and you work on the male side. You want people to delve into both opportunities and, and hopefully if, if, there can be networks created and and I'm sure you'll agree with young practitioners, that's what you need to be creating. You need to be creating your network and reaching out to people and um, yeah. that's going to lead to opportunities for yourself, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I say it's, it's almost like double-edged in that, yes, it's society and sport and, and NGBs and individual clubs, we need to be better, but equally, you know, you need to seek out those opportunities, you know, being, being a woman, being a female, you need to seek it out as well, or, you know, put yourself in a position to then be able to seek it out, whether that is reaching out and, and finding a mentor or, or something like that, you know, be proactive as much as expecting something just to come to you. So taking that report into consideration, Don, going forward, um, we wanted to talk about the areas of future research as well. So yeah. what, are, what are some of your thoughts on um, the ways that we can develop the women's game and, and areas that will be researched in more detail? Yeah, I mean, I think right now, if you look at the literature, there's very little on women's sport, let alone kind of women's football. So I guess my immediate response was is would be that everything needs to be researched. You know, can we are we com- com- comfortable and confident that we can just apply the research that we've done in, on male groups, male co- cohorts to the female population? Because you know, in essence, that's that's pretty much what we've done to date. Um, you know, there has been some research done you know, on, on, on kind of women's groups, uh, women's uh, cohorts, some of it very good, some of it very much lacking in research design or methods or very small sample sizes, which then does make it difficult to fully interpret the results. Um, you know, I think uh, probably in terms of where would be the key ones, I think, you know, match demands, I think we still, you know, don't fully know um, myself, um uh, Rick Lovell, my PhD supervisor, we had a paper out earlier this year um, uh, on some of the NWSL kind of match data. Um, again, there's very limited data on, you know, some of the, the elite um, women's football um, divisions. So, you know, I think even then, you know, we, we don't fully know the WSL match demands, the, the women's championship in, in the England, um, you know, match demands. So I think, you know, that's one. I think the other piece is, you know, what are optimal training loads and training methods for females? Um, I think that's probably generally across the football population in terms of what are those 
optimal train loads for performance. And then I think, um, you know, injury surveillance and then linking in the training exposure, um, again, I think is a big one. I don't think there's been a lot done out there on, on women's football. And, you know, even this year alone, in terms of ACL injuries, I think in the Swedish Women's Pro League, they've had 12 ACL injuries and six of those happened in the preseason. Then six have happened in the first six rounds of matches. And then in that NWSL tournament, they've had seven ACL injuries in two months. So, you know, even that, like, what is the, you know, what what is the mechanism? What's the cause? Again, linked into that, there's there's been talk about what role does a menstrual cycle have in ACL injuries? And, you know, the honest question, the honest answer right now is we don't know. Um, there's just been two uh, meta-analysis has done on uh, the impact of the menstrual cycle on performance and the overarching conclusion is that actually um, we don't know because the the research design and methods have, have not been done that well um, so further research is needed and and you know around the menstrual cycle some of the the key focus right now is is really individualize it monitor the individual player determine what their symptoms are and then just manage those symptoms. And, you know, that's what I did, you know, in the US, we um, we educated the players in, in the last six, eight months in the lead up to the World Cup. Uh, we highlighted what some of their key symptoms were, and then we worked with individual players to minimise the impact of those symptoms on their performance. And that was purely done through uh, nutrition, diet, uh, recovery strategies, and, and then sleep. So, you know, I think on the menstrual cycle, I think it's important. It's an area to address, to educate, to support players, to support them individually. But very much we need to do more research about everything I've just mentioned there, like match demands, training loads, injury surveillance and, and train exposure. What actually is the impact of the menstrual cycle? Because every single day of, of, a, of a woman's um, menstrual cycle, the hormones are fluctuating, and they're changing. Estrogen has an impact in most processes in the body and, you know, it fluctuates, it changes um, throughout your cycle so again what is the impact of that can we can we just apply the methods that we use in the men's game you know that's probably what I've done I've, I've adapted those methods but based them on the individual player but really we don't fully have that research to fully know you know if if that is affected by the menstrual cycle and by being kind of a female and the female physiology yeah, and, you, and with, with all those that you talk about, obviously the progress of the women's game so far without any of that taking place, it's just exciting, isn't it, that you think of all these yeah. areas that can be researched and if you'll think about five, ten years' time, like where, where things could be, it's, it's very exciting, isn't it? It must be great in your role. Yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's exciting how far it's come, but I think it's, like you say, it's it's really exciting how far it can still develop and push especially you know the the funding from FIFA um the FIFA president and you know I just think the increase in in support and professionalism of players and leagues um you know the players now being in better training environments the better support around them the better education um yeah it's I mean the increase in participation numbers can then only serve to increase the competitiveness and you know suddenly if there's 2.4 million females in England participating in football as they progress through the pathway you're going to have more players competing for spots in the national team spots and so on and you know I think that is going to be massive for for England in the next you know four or five years in terms of the competitions that they've got coming up 
And then for to, to take it full circle, to talk about the practitioner as well, that everything looking forward, that these opportunities, again, like we talked about throughout the episode, they're going to be available if, you, if you're willing to seek them out, isn't it? So taking yeah, into absolutely. consideration everything that you've talked about, I think it's a great time to be, to be getting involved and coming through into, into um, these roles. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And even Fief Pro, um, which supports is is almost a um, uh, I can't think of the word. Um, they basically support the players, and they did a bit of a, a questionnaire and research with the players. And you know, some of the feedback is that still some players are not in those environments that are conducive to their performance. So yeah, I think with some of this fund and moving forward, I think those will be the areas that will be addressed. And yeah, there'll absolutely be more opportunities available in women's football for those positions to support the players and the teams. Brilliant. Well, Dawn, I think this has been a top, top podcast. Mm -hmm. I've really enjoyed speaking to you about everything that we talked about and I hope we've covered everything that we sort of set out to in the first place and answered (laughs) a lot of questions that have been put out to us, which I'm, I'm sure you have. So I really do appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Um, Just finally, if there's, Anywhere that people want to follow your work um, or keep up to date with what you've got going on, where's the best place to do that? Um, probably Twitter. Uh, my handle is Dawn Scott zero six. Um, that yeah, that's probably yeah, probably the main place that I would post anything. Perfect. Well, we'll put that in the show notes so people can uh, give you a follow. I'm sure they are already, but um, and keep an eye out with everything going on. But. I- Huge thank you to Dawn for coming on. Dawn's someone, like I said at the start of the episode, someone I've wanted to get on for a long time. And um, I really do think this was a quality episode. One that I think needs to be shared. I always ask for the podcast to be shared. But I think this one, as well as uh, the one that Rob Pacey did, I think they need to be, these need to be conversations that need to be shared about. So please, please share it with anyone that you think will benefit. Um, obviously females involved in SNC or wanting to get involved in SNC or sports science but not just females obviously the big tip one of the big takeaways for me was encouraging conversations and getting more open conversations going between males and females and and any coaches really so that is something that we need to start encouraging in our industry um, the challenges that females faced I mean Don mentioned a few specifics um, and I think as as male practitioners, these are obviously something that we don't come across. And I think it's only right that we speak to female practitioners and find out about these and support them in any way we can. Like some of the things that Dawn's been through and experienced, like it's not right. And I'm sure many other female practitioners have been through similar uh, circumstances and circumstances and situations. And as a whole, as a collective, we need to do something about that. And um, that in itself, I think will create more opportunities. We've mentioned in the episode, there's so many great female practitioners, some that we've had on the, the podcast already, and I'm also looking to get even more on. And um, yeah, I think it's only right that we try to push things forward. Building your network and finding a mentor was something that we spoke about on the podcast numerous times, but it's so important, so, so important. And Dawn, Dawn spoke about the value that she's took from doing that in her career. Um, the contextual data, so um, Dawn linked in with Paul Bradley for the, the data, um, the report, sorry, the physical uh, report that FIFA produced on the World Cup, and we have to keep it all in context. Again, something that we spoke about before, but it has to be contextual. And then all the research opportunities that are involved in female football, and this has got to be something that 
um, researchers got to look at. I think there's a huge area that can be investigated and researched. And like the women's game, like Don said, has come. It's it's come on leaps and bounds. Like the quality, the speed, the power involved in the game now has come on leaps and bounds. But if you think about the the areas of research that have still not been tapped into, where could it go? Like in a, in a few years, I think it's a very exciting game to be involved in, um, and something that Dawn referenced in the episode as well. So. I think this was a great episode. You can tell by the length of it. And I said at the start, this could have gone on for two or three hours, but um, I, I didn't want to keep Dawn all day. So I hope you take plenty from this episode. Please give it a share. Go and give Dawn a follow as well. So you can follow her on Twitter at DawnScott06 um, and reach out. Let us know what you took from the podcast. And again, huge thank you to Dawn for coming on the episode. Thanks again for listening. And I'll speak to you next week in episode 100.